I'm Lindsay, mom of two active boys on the West Coast and believe there's no reason for money to be ugly. I love helping busy moms make it pretty without using cash envelopes or coupons. And I'm Megan. Me and my husband, we have four kiddos and I relate more to the dad role than the mom. And I'm an HGTV loving, oversharing finance nerd. Together we host the Money Stuff with Moms podcast. We understand the hashtag mom life but we also can appreciate the big picture adulting responsibilities like money. In this podcast, we invite you to be a part of our no fluff, fun conversations that will give you helpful on the go finance tips. Even if it's just a peek behind the curtains to hear about what we are doing with our money. Okay, so we're just gonna jump right in. Today we have Andrea on the podcast. So Andrea, tell us who who you are, who you help, what do you do, how many kids you got, tell us everything in between. Give us all the goods. All the goods. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, both of you. Um, and and who am I? I'm a mom first first and foremost. So I uh, I have twins, they're four and a half years old, Ella and Julian. And uh, they definitely keep me on the move. Um, it's a really hectic time at our stage of life right now with the two of them. Um, oh, I can't even imagine having twins. You're like, yeah. not just mom, like super mom. <laughs> well, the joke is like, you don't really get the choice when you have twins, right? Like it just, you just have twins and you have to figure it out as you go. So, um, you know, that's my number one job. And I actually... Uh, I used to work at an investment brokerage firm um, in Toronto. And when I, my goal was always when I had kids that I wanted to be more available as a mom for my kids. So um, eventually when I got pregnant, I started formulating a plan for starting my own business that would give me the flexibility to be able to eventually pick up my kids from kindergarten. So my end goal was actually to like pick up my kids from kindergarten at, you know, 3.30 p.m., every day and to be a present mom. I didn't want to be stuck downtown, um, you know, with somebody else picking up my kids. Um, Not that there's anything wrong with that. That was just my goal um, for myself. So um, my kids are now in JK. So this is their first official year in school. And I started my own advice only financial planning business in January, 2021. And it's called Modern Sense. And uh, similar to Megan, uh, advice-only planning is financial planning with no tied product sales. So I give advice to my clients, and my clients are the only ones who pay me. So they are my only source of compensation. And um, I have a lot of really informal but wonderful conversations um, on an ongoing basis with a large group of clients. So um I, I try to help with lots of different types of, of Canadians and individuals, um, but I also do have a large cross-border uh, component of my practice as well. And I think that Lindsay had a similar goal too. Like I remember one of the conversations we had where Lindsay said one of her goals, even before she had kids, was that she wanted, she like visualized like walking them to school or whatever that was. I find that so fascinating. Totally. Yeah. That was a, that was big for, that was big for me. And, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to create a life where, yeah, I had time for my kids. Um, And now that they're older and into so many things and so busy, um, it's like the complete opposite. I'm like, okay, I need to find time to work. (laughs) (laughs) 
There's not enough hours in the day. (laughs) And if I could start like before 10 p.m. after they're asleep, that would be super cool. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny how it flips like that. Um, I I started my business too when my kids were really little. Like Josephine, I think was a newborn. Yeah, she actually was a newborn when I wrote my CFP exam because I remember um, I I think she was like little, little. My mom had to be the CFP exam is an eight hour exam, but they also give you lunch. So like you get an hour for lunch. So my mom had to have Josephine in a stroller and just walked her around the college all day. But if she needed to eat or I needed her to eat, you know, like one of those things where it was like this is insane. (laughs) What am I doing? (laughs) Hashtag mom life right there. Oh man. Hashtag (laughs) true. So true. Yeah. Um, Okay. So when you say cross border, just explain to us in normal five-year-old language. What that means. Yeah. So what's the border? Yeah. So um, actually I'm in New York right now, which is the perfect illustration of cross-border. So with my practice, cross-border means anybody who has a financial picture that touches both the U.S. and Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, There's lots of different countries in the world that, you know, have people that move back and forth between them. But, you know, we are very, very uniquely tied um, to the U.S. economy in Canada. And there's a lot of people who, for whatever reason, have financial lives that somehow do cross that border. So whether it's that they used to work in the U.S. and they've come back to Canada, and now they've got a bunch of financial assets and pensions that still live there, whether they are Americans themselves, so U.S. citizens or green card holders that live in Canada now, or if they have potentially family that lives in the U.S., let's say their parents are down south and there's potential inheritance issues with their parents' financial picture being in the U.S. Um, a lot of people have U.S.-based employment now because we can work, work remotely from Canada. Yeah. So there's a lot of clients that I have who work for U.S.-based employers that are fine with them living in Canada, and they have this financial reality that just literally lives in both countries at ongoing basis. Um, so there's a lot of different use cases if you want to use that funny tech term to what cross-border could mean but realistically the list is a bit endless Um, and often what the Canadian financial system doesn't cater to um, is having the acumen to be able to understand the complexities around all of the the cross-border financial questions that Canadians might have Um, and that's where some mistakes can get made so um, I, having worked for uh, an investment brokerage firm that uh, on our practice focused uniquely on those clients. And I was, I used to be um, U.S. securities licensed. I was also Canadian securities licensed. I'm not anymore. Uh, And right now I have my um, CRPC designation, which is a U.S. retirement planning designation, as well as being a Canadian certified financial planner. Um, I've I've gotten and I've gleaned enough knowledge in that time frame to really feel like I've got a pretty good handle on um, a lot of those issues that, that come up for cross-border individuals living in Canada. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. And so are you cross-border yourself? Nope. <laughs> Absolutely not. I am not cross-border myself, but we do have someone in my family who we call an accidental American. So um, my step to, 
My stepsister's son was born in Chicago. Um, they lived in Chicago for a very brief period of time. I think it was for one year and he was born there. So he's now a U.S. citizen, even though they live back in Canada now. So that in itself, uh, people don't always realize can actually create a large financial uh, potential issue uh, once that child reaches age of majority. So um, lots of funny use cases, but no, I myself am not a cross-border individual. Um. This is a selfishly me question. What if um, someone like me, who's a Canadian, no ties to the US, were to buy an investment property in the US? Yeah, I mean, you can do that, first of all. I can do it, but of course. Would, would it be, what are the pros and cons or just some scenarios that someone who's thinking about making that decision consider? Yeah, that's a really good question. So first of all, it would depend where that you're looking to buy in the U.S. because different states do have different types of legislation around Canadian ownership of U.S. properties. And there are also different state laws uh, around estate planning that could also apply depending on where you buy a U.S. property. So a lot of people like to buy, let's say, Florida property because Florida is actually a zero probate state. So it's actually pretty beneficial if you want to put your money somewhere and, and kind of have it grow and, and not worry about um, paying probate at death. That's a, a good place to park money. That's why there's so many large, huge properties in Florida in general. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times, I think people think that it has to be more complicated than it has than it needs to be. So I've seen a lot of people say, you know, should I set up a corporation? Should I set up some sort of structure to put this property in? Um, you know, that's not necessarily my specialty to say yes or no to that. I think talking to a cross-border lawyer about that sort of thing is more important. But uniquely, what I have seen is that if it's just one property, you don't have to make it complicated. You don't have to put it inside of a shell just to have it inside of a shell unless you're very concerned about, let's say, maybe liability protection or something like that. Um, when you get to like, let's say, multiple uh, real estate opportunities and you're operating it at more as a business, that is a different um, potential use case for having a more complicated structure. Uh, but there are good cross-border uh, lawyers out there who can talk to you about what things that you should consider if you are looking to buy multiple rental properties mm -hmm. in the U.S. Okay, cool. So as a, you know, as a friend, if someone says to you, hey, I'm thinking about buying a property down in the U.S., do you, like, is your gut reaction a thumbs up or a thumbs down? Yeah, fine. Nothing yeah. wrong with it. It doesn't, no, it doesn't bother me. I, it's funny, my financial brain will immediately go to like, okay, but you have to have some estate planning around the property and, or yeah. deal with it in some sort of way when most people who aren't me aren't immediately jumping to estate planning, but that's just how my brain works. Um, so I think it's just an awareness of, you know, if you're going to have something that lives outside of your province of, of residence in Canada, um, and it is in a foreign jurisdiction that you do have to think about those types of implications, whether it's on the estate planning side or on the tax planning side, um, what types of filings are you going to be required to do? How does that impact your Canadian filings and so on? But all things that are figureoutable. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Currency is a big factor too. So don't forget, you know, when you're living in Canada and you want to buy something in the U.S., that's all in U.S. dollars. So mm -hmm. um, often uh, what I've seen a lot of is people who have potentially bought something either in Canada being a U.S. resident or in the U.S. being a Canadian resident at the quote-unquote wrong time when it comes to the U.S. Canadian dollar. 
So, you know, in the last year, the US dollar has been on a tear compared to the Canadian dollar. It's been like, you know, 135, you know, as high as 138 recently compared to the Canadian dollar. So if you're having to take your Canadian dollars and translate them to make a US down payment, consider the impact of, you know, where is the US dollar at right now? And is this the best time? Are you getting the best bang for your buck? Um, you know, if the US dollar is really strong and the Canadian dollar is weaker, you know, circumstantially. Mm -hmm. um, that's just one thing I look at because I often see people who have then in the future sold a property, but they don't want to make the conversion back because they're going to lose money on converting it back the other way. So they yeah. literally sit with the money in the other country because they're just waiting for that money to come back to a reasonable level to make the exchange. Mm hmm one more major factor in your in your decision making mm -hmm. uh, that uh, and I would assume like there's lots of factors but that one will be involved in every single individual's um, you know scenarios so uh, you know maybe potentially even one of the first factors that should be considered in, in a decision like that maybe I mean I would say that you know the reason for buying the property you know, is, is the first decision to make. And whether it's a more of a business decision, like Megan's talking about, where it's, let's say, a rental property and that you're doing it for, um, you know, specifically an investment type of return or cash flow from that investment that you have a better opportunity and more diversification in a different jurisdiction. Um, that's one good use case. Um, but often something that I've seen that I would caution people to think about a little bit more is, rushing to buy uh, recreational property in the US. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, I think there's a lot of allure to living in a warmer climate and, you know, to wanting to have something that you can escape to, um, but you don't necessarily have to buy to do that. And that's a big decision. And that's a lot of money to, to put towards something like that. So I, what I'll often counsel my clients to think about is try going somewhere and renting for a season. Mm -hmm. See if you like living there. Like, see if you actually like putting down roots, going to the grocery store, you know, seeing who your neighbors are before you financially commit to buying something. Because often, like, like when you buy any property, you don't know your neighbors until you live there, right? Like, you don't know anything about it until you actually reside in that, in that neighborhood. So I think try out a couple different locations before committing to a location and, uh, and see if you really like, you know, being a resident of that particular place. Yeah, really good advice. Mm -hmm. um, episode 20 of our podcast, we talked about some people being like math people or considering that they are math people just because they can do math quickly in their head or because as a child they excelled or didn't excel in math class. Is Are you like a math person? Is financial literacy something that came natural to you? Is it something that you learned? Like what guided this career path for you? I would say looking back, I, I would have not qualified myself as a math person, not to say that I was bad at math, but I wouldn't have immediately thought, oh, I'm going to do something related to numbers when I grow up. Mm -hmm. I actually went to school for biology and environmental science, um, which I did not end up pursuing as a career. And I fell into this type of profession really because my dad was in it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think a little bit of learning by osmosis as you grow up, which a lot of people do with their parents' professions. Um, it did come naturally to me and it did, and it was something that I truly 
enjoyed and I, I do feel very passionate about actually. So I feel like I'm in the right place. Um, I don't think I'm the strongest at calculus in the world, <laughs> but uh, I, I do think I have a good head for numbers. Cool. Um, and then on that same vein, do you have like a biggest money mistake? Of course. Who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. If I could recount the number of, um, of mistakes that I have made, hindsight is always 2020. Like, let's just start with that. I tell my clients this all the time. Like we can always go back and say, we should have done X, Y, or Z. I will tell you the mistake and I will tell you how it's going to be, how it's something that if you kind of look forward that you can avoid making this mistake. So I'll take you to the exact example. It was like 2005 or 2006. So I was early on in my financial career and um, I started investing some money or having money to be invested. And I was doing it myself, sort of DIY mutual funding, if you want to call it that back in the day. And I didn't know how to pick a mutual fund. I didn't know what type of investment was, you know, uh, what I didn't know how to differentiate one from another. I had no idea. I, I didn't really work on the investment side of the business at that time. Mm -hmm. So I was like totally blind. So what did I do? I pulled up the performance history of all these mutual funds that I was picking from. And I went, oh, you know, that one did 35% last year that's going to be a really great one for me to invest in because that did so great. So I picked that mutual fund and that was the AGF China mutual fund. I will never forget it. <laughs> I can cover your face. I mean, that's a pretty volatile emerging market type of investment now that I know what emerging markets are, but I put all of my money into that and I watched it quickly decline um, after I bought it. And um, it was really painful. It was a very painful lesson for me as a novice investor that, um, you know, first of all, investing should be as boring, boring as farming. Like it shouldn't be exciting. It shouldn't be, I want to maximize my return in a short time frame as I can. But I didn't know that back then, right? I, I was just kind of getting started on my own. I was excited. I had money to be invested. Um, so chasing returns, that would be my biggest money mistake. Um, and, and alongside that, I think my second one that I feel it goes hand in hand is using financial products without really understanding how they work. So not really having much guidance, um, working in finance and thinking that I knew in the early days, but I didn't really know. I started playing around with options trading when I was like 26 years old. That, that was a really big mistake. So I, I think, you know, just be really careful and remember that, you know, even though it's digital money, this is still real dollars we're talking about. <laughs> like if we took our physical cash, like if we had $20 bills and we made those same decisions with real physical money, I think it would be a lot harder and we would think a lot more about some of the decisions that we're making. So those would be my two biggest mistakes. <laughs> doing it your, doing it yourself and, and, you know, getting into the, the areas that, you know, maybe you're not, uh, overly well versed in just gave me this picture of like me as I don't know probably like late teen early 20 like bleaching my own hair like I can do this I've watched people do this I know how to do this like like Sunnen remember remember Sunnen yes like that that's a great idea yeah, that's the analogy <laughs> for everybody that you've all probably done before in some or like self-tanner right? Like exactly. who hasn't had a horrid self-tanner experience? 
absolutely for sure. But in your beginner defense, <laughs> it is the only metric that matters to you in that moment. Yes. Yeah. It is the metric that you're thinking, okay, well, if I'm going to give up this $20 bill to not spend now, but for future me to spend in the future on, I don't even know what I want it to be 35% more <laughs> than I could have used it today. So like, it's, it's often it's the only metric that you have at your fingertips. Yeah, yeah, right? it's one of those Look things. at that chart. It's awesome. 35% exactly. last year. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. But there's so much around that. And, and I think, you know, when we're talking about just like, you know, how women and moms approach finance. I think we look at it more from a goal centric point of view. And, and, you know, often, what are we trying to achieve? What are we trying to do? And choosing the thing, you know, whether it's mutual funds, or exchange traded funds, or whatever the thing is to make our money grow, is like the last step in all of it. So I think the learning from all of this is, don't jump to the product. And if you're working with somebody who's focusing on the product, rather than on the journey to get to the end product, then that is potentially a conflict of interest. Um, you know, quite often I'll have clients will say, well, you know, I, I might just, you know, go talk to my banker about that. And I, I always have the blinders, uh, the red light kind of flashing um, when someone tells me that, because I know usually what happens when someone walks into a bank branch and um, thinks that they're having someone work in their best interest for them. So uh, often, Again, the product should be the last uh, element of this and it shouldn't be sexy. Mm -hmm. I know. Isn't, and that just, it makes it so boring. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the way it should be. It should be boring. But I, you know, and, and often I think that there's just so much glamorization of investing specifically investing right like we do financial planning but there's a lot of glamorizing and, and discussion around specifically the investment component which is more like gambling right that's gambling speculation that's not investing those are two different and uniquely distinct things mm -hmm. so you know when megan's talking about buying an investment property she's not gambling mm -hmm. like this is a big decision there's a lot that goes into making that decision mm -hmm. but when you're buying something on a whim and you're putting a bunch of money towards it and you're hoping you're going to hit it big, you might as well go to the casino, right? It's the same type of thing. So if you're looking to develop a long-term strategy for yourself, it should be as boring as farming. It should be something where, you know, you expect, you know, five, 6% a year over the long term. That's okay. That's what it should do if you want to develop something that is consistent and reliable for yourself that you'll stick to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, such a good point. And I really liked um, that word of, um, what was it, glamorization? And it, like, yeah, in all things, right? Mm -hmm. In all things, um, you know, some, I, I have that experience when I, I don't know if either of you guys do this. Well, I know that Megan doesn't do this. I don't know if you do this. <laughs> like, you know, their, their kids, like cucumbers will be in different shapes. Oh gosh, I don't have time for that. <laughs> and I were talking about like, come on, I, I have a hard time getting them a PB&J. <laughs> like 100%. With the crusts on, didn't even cut it down the middle sometimes. <laughs> I, lo I love that. I love that analogy. So Instagram just makes everything seem like it's achievable or attainable in that way. And it often just makes us feel worse. Um, no, I don't have time to cut cucumbers into shape. I, yeah. Yes. I do. 
All right. Well, we can, uh, we can definitely. You're in good company. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And if you're listening and you do that, like, just teach us your ways because we don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that that's just it is like, the definition of mom isn't always cucumbers cut into stars the definition like I am a mom but I uh, I am not the stereotypical mom like I always have said like I'm the dad like whatever you think the stereotypical dad is like that's me my family has two dads so it doesn't mean my kids miss out on on other things it's just that other things are important to us and we've kind of that's normal for our family. That's a great, that's a great point. And thank you, first of all, for normalizing that, because um, I think often we don't see a lot of examples of that uh, in popular culture and in social media that we need more uh, normal, whatever a normal mom looks like. I don't think that exists anymore. I think everyone just creates their own path and does whatever they want to do. And we shouldn't, um, you know, judge anyone for the direction that they choose to take. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I love that. Kinds. Takes all kinds, yeah, and all we're kinds. all better by being friends with each other and not judging because they do do this or they don't do that. It's totally, you know, our kids need to be raised different so that they know other, they can design their own paths too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, with your your kids are really little, but do they mm-hmm. have a concept of like? money or have you started giving them an allowance or like how is that money conversation in your house hey megan here i don't mean to interrupt the episode but i just wanted to pop in and say how grateful Lindsay and i are to have you choose us to be in your earbuds today if you have a quick second we will really appreciate you hitting the subscribe and leaving us a five-star review. It really helps us promote our podcast more than you know. Now on to the rest of the episode. Yeah, so I, it's evolving. Let's just start with that. Yeah, and no, by no means do I have any sort of magic bullet. Uh, I'm a first-time mom. I don't know what works. I don't know what doesn't work. Uh, I obviously do talk about money in general a lot because it's my profession and I really believe in it. So we try to, first of all, just teach our kids about value. Um, And I think having them appreciate the value of either it be a toy or food that they're eating, um, anything that has value that you can attribute to them to have them understand that it didn't just show up from somewhere in an Amazon box and that, that that didn't have some sort of input to get that. So that would be the first thing that I would say. And one way that we try to show value to our kids is if they get like a gift card, for example, for their birthday or for Christmas or whatever it might be, um, we'll go with them to the store and say, okay, this is a $50 gift card. You have to go around and try to figure out what you can get that will keep you under $50. And they, they know enough you know, numbers now to know what under $50 means. So they can do that exercise. And I think that that's a really good lesson in consumerism in a way that it's not just like you can have whatever you want whenever you want it. It's like there are constraints. So my son, he has this digital camera my mom bought him for his birthday or something two years ago, and he beat the crap out of it. He he killed the camera. (laughs) And he's like, well, now I need another one. I'm like, well, you're going to have to put that 
on some sort of list for a birthday or something. You don't just get another one. It costs money. And, you know, mommy and daddy have to work hard in order to make money. So you don't just get another one if you break something. Um, so it's, I guess, small things like that. Um, they don't get an allowance yet. Um, you know, they any money that they do get goes into their RESP that we get from family. So I actually do show them on my spreadsheet. Like these are your coins that you have for your future school. Like they have no idea of what the quantification of that number actually means, but just to show them, you know, and talk to them like mommy and daddy, every year we put money into this uh, account or bucket for you to save for you for when you go to school, when you're bigger. Um, so it's just small things they don't have to understand the mechanics or anything like that, but just so they know and are, have some awareness of it all. Mm -hmm. And then as they grow up, um, you know, introducing smaller things every year. I know there's some good apps out there that I've heard of. Mido, I think is one of them that was interesting. I don't know if either of you use anything like that, um, but that's kind of where we're at in our journey at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we so our family is using Mido, but I do have older children, like teenagers. Mm -hmm. So it, it's both nice that I don't need to worry about cash because we do allowance because like I said, I got older kids who understand also the, the things that they're wanting to purchase are just out of my so price range. Expensive. Yeah. So they, yeah. it's teaching them not only like the appreciation of timing and how long things take to to acquire um it's also a responsibility thing for us my son he is 14 and he really likes it he can bring his phone to the ski hill he can buy himself lunch he can do all those things my daughter doesn't have a phone she's 12 and she hates it because she is nervous about using the card she, oh, she, interesting. she feels shy to like have it maybe decline um, where she would rather go with cash and know, okay, I have a 20, this number says under 20. Mm -hmm. So it's, I think it's a confidence thing mm -hmm. and just like using her, her math in her head to figure out like, okay, this thing is going to be 20 plus 13% because we're 13% in Ontario tax. Mm -hmm. And I, I, my card isn't going to decline me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's really allowance. <clears throat> I mean, it's like a lot of things, but uh, allowance, it's so like personality based, like what method works for one kid um, does not necessarily work for another. Um, you know, I've, I have one who um, is quite easily distracted. And if he doesn't, see his money in front of him um he has like the digital money it hasn't worked for him right mm -hmm. um or like a digital task list that doesn't work for him but having it on paper stuck on the fridge and a clear jar with money in it that is much more visual for him at his you know development and personality stage um and uh yeah so i i've I found that with, you know, all of my clients, it's, it's so personality driven um, and not just the kid, the adult too. <laughs> if I have somebody who often goes to the bank um, and can get, you know, has, has a, a regular relationship with cash, then giving cash is fine. <laughs> if you never use cash, but you're going to do a cash 
allowance system with your kid, you're probably setting yourself up for some challenges because you are, you know, Friday's going to roll around and you're not going to have the $5 to dole out. <laughs> Mm-hmm. For sure. I love I love that um, the touch on personality is actually so important and I think really not talked about enough. And I know, Megan, in your practice, you do personality um, testing with your clients and I've started to do it as well. Um, because you're right, everyone is so unique, whether it be kids or, or adults. And we don't often cater our financial advice accordingly mm-hmm. to different personality types. And I think it's also challenging when you've got... Um, spouses or partners that do differ quite significantly in how they manage things that work for them. Um, sorry to take us off of kids for a second, but um, that, that can be like a major cause of conflict that I've seen in relationships. And, um, and first of all, understanding what type of money personality that you are, but also what your spouse is and then how you create a system that will work for both of you or work for your family appropriately uh, is not something that I think we talk about enough in in traditional financial planning, if you want to call it that. So um, that's probably a lot of what you do, I imagine, Lindsay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, people, they read a book or they hear what their friend's doing, they try to implement it, and then they feel like a total idiot because it's not working for them. Like, oh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you're not them. Yeah. Their kids are not your kids. Their husband is not your husband. You know, they're they're paid once per month. You're paid bi-weekly like those things all the different parts and pieces um, mm-hmm. really make a really make a big difference um, yeah and so I'm curious back to some cross-border stuff I'm curious less on um uh the things that make us different but the the commonalities on those cross-border clients like what is the most you know common um frustration or or challenge like is it just Mm -hmm. for like the average ordinary you know person is it around the tfsa rules resp rules is it uh the tax yeah for sure so i think it depends if they're a u.s tax filer or not so we'll just put two categories so if they're either a citizen or a green card holder living in canada the tax piece is really i would say the most frustrating thing for a lot of people to wrap their brains around because there's a lot of additional reporting that could be required and that often is required even if you have a relatively low complexity situation um, that you know finding the right type of accountant to work with you on is really key I always say to my if I ever have someone come in the door who wants to talk to me and I'm the first person they talk to I will often say I'm not your first person you need to find and I will give you names of a cross-border CPA because they are going to be your first line of defense for everything related to tax. And you need that person on your team. So I would say the tax element for anyone who's a tax filer and uh, of the U S living in Canada, mm-hmm. if they're not, and let's just say they have other complexities, often it's, it's usually what to do with things that are in the U S now that you have a Canadian address. So mm-hmm. what do you do with all of this stuff? that maybe you've left behind or is there for whatever reason now that you have a Canadian address because a lot of times U.S. financial institutions don't like to deal with us up here there's some regulatory constraints that in in essence forbid them or don't permit them to have a relationship with someone who doesn't live on U.S. soil so that's often a really big constraint uh, that I see people struggling to know what to do with um under duress sometimes from some of the u.s financial institutions Mm -hmm. in canada we're so much more used to working with 
the U.S. Like we're a lot more, you know, open and friendly to, to U.S. related things. It's a bit of the opposite from the other way around because they're so much, I guess, larger than us in a way. Mm -hmm. um, so it does make for some um, complexities when you're moving from, like, say, you know, the U.S. from can to Canada to then figuring out, well, now that I'm here, do you still love me? You know, what do I do with all of this that's left over there? Mm -hmm. So it for me, it's working with the clients and helping them understand where their red flags are and what their options are to do with all of those things. And then often it's how to integrate them into a long-term financial plan, given that they're potentially permanently in Canada, or maybe they're going to go back to the U.S. and they don't know yet. A lot of people are in that bucket too. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people are in that bucket. I mean, even within Canada, right? Like you move to one city and you're not sure if you're staying there forever. You might 100 might go somewhere, right? Well, yeah. and it could be a relationship thing as well. Like you could move based on a relationship you're in that uh, that ends. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. uh, what I was saying to my husband this morning as we were walking down the street is, you know, you realize, you know, even though I'm a financial planner and we do planning, in a way, how futile long-term planning is. I know that sounds like, you know, a bit of an anti what I do, but True. there's so much that can happen in our lifetime, right? There's so many things that have happened to all of us here that we have not, that we could never have forecasted for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't know I would be a business owner, you know, and a mom at the same time, I could have never forecast that. Mm -hmm. There's so much change that Planning we have no idea. Yeah, exactly. And so much change that we don't know is coming or happening. So I, I think one of the things that I would say to, to most people is, you know, focus on actionable shorter term goals that you have that have measurable results. Hmm. Because for me, you know, if you're creating a long term plan, A, it's already wrong, because things are going to change. Mm -hmm. And B, there's no sense for, for somebody who is receiving this information to really understand if this is going to be truly beneficial for them because it's so far out mm -hmm. we can't see ourselves more than 10 years in the future so how when you're planning for things for the long term it's important but I think focusing on sort of shorter term things is is more important like I could be living in New York in 15 years from now that could completely change my financial plan Oh, true. So why am I bothering worrying about establishing an Ontario-based retirement distribution plan at age 40? It's, it's a, not necessarily, in my opinion, the most uh, worthwhile exercise. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, uh, you know, how to, um, how to eat an elephant, right? <laughs> so mm -hmm. One bite at a time. And uh, often for my clients, like, <clears throat> and I'm sure you guys too, but my clients um, are, they have, like you were saying, they have a hard time uh, visualizing themselves more than 10 years from now. And we'll take the retirement goal that they've come up with, with their, you know, planner advisor and break it down into what do we need to do this decade? What do we need to do in these five years? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know about you guys. I have a lot more fun, you know, with a goal of saving $10,000 a year and putting a check beside that line item than saving hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? 100%. Like, it's so hard to attain today. And I want the satisfaction now because totally. I'm a millennial and 
that's all I know. Um, so yeah, breaking those things down, what is the actionable and measurable step that we can take right now? Yeah. And, and actually showing that you can do it. You know, if you break yeah. it down into these small things, you can accomplish it. It's, it's doable and you can get that sort of emotional gratification yeah. in the short term rather than like, well, hopefully when I'm 65, this will work out. Like that's, that's not really exciting. Is it? <laughs> I don't think it's exciting. It's not for anyone. exciting. And, and I, you know, I think that, um, as moms, often we feel overwhelmed and we have, there's a lot of things that we do on a daily basis that we don't get to put that check mark beside that we don't necessarily feel accomplished in. Um, yeah. and, I, you know, we all have a jury between our two ears telling us whether or not, you know, we can be convicted of um, being uh, uh, somebody who is capable or yeah. not. And I want to give that jury evidence for, you know, me and my clients that like, yeah, we can do this. You can't tell me, you can't prove to me that I can't do it because I've already yeah. given the evidence that I can. I love that. Yeah, Amazing. And I think it's, also being open to having these types of conversations with our peers mm -hmm. where it's like I feel like sometimes it's difficult to share both the struggles we're going through as well as the successes whereas it's like you know we got to do this great big exciting thing or do this purchase or whatever it is because you don't want to be seen as bragging or above or whatever but it's also the opposite on that you know, I'm really struggling. Like, what did I do wrong? How come I can't seem to gain traction or whatever that struggle is? Um, it's just normalizing both ends, like normalize that sometimes people make really good decisions because they've planned for them or not. Sometimes they're just lucky, but also sometimes it's really difficult and you don't know what your ne next right step is or how to get out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we, we tie so much to our finances, don't we? Like on how yeah. good of a person we are yeah. and like all the senses of, of that statement. And, and so, yeah, we don't want to share the, the failures because we're, you know, we don't want the judgment um, from others and we're already feeling down about ourselves maybe. And it's like, that has nothing to do with who you are. It doesn't yeah. even say how good or bad you are with money. I know. It's just a choice in the moment. <laughs> Well, and none of us, you know, most people didn't go to finance school, right? We, we shouldn't be expected to know all of this. It's not, it's not something that was in our high school curriculum when I was growing up. So oh. we didn't really start on a footing unless our parents instilled it within us mm -hmm. of knowing what the right steps are to take. So I always, when I work with a client, tell them like no blame or shame as to any decisions that you have made in the past. There is nothing that you can do about it now. There is nothing wrong with what you have done. All we can do is look forward into the future and make different decisions or make similar decisions or whatever it might be. Um, but we need to stop shaming ourselves, which I think a lot of people do for decisions that we've made in the past. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's not serving any purpose. And I love the, the notion of the vulnerability that you bring up um, because so many people are, are very uh, sensitive and vulnerable when it comes to talking about finances, even within their own family. Like they're not sharing these details with their kids or their parents. There's a lot of walls there that exist. So I think, you know, destigmatizing the financial conversation in general is really important. And knowing that it's okay if you're in a different spot 
than someone else. I have so many clients who say, how am I doing? And I'll say, what do, what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Well, like, how am I doing for my age? And, and how am I doing compared to other people? And I'll say, you know, you're not going to like the answer. But I, there is no answer because everybody is on their own unique life path. And everybody has made different financial decisions and everybody has different circumstances. You have a different job. You've had a different uh, education and employment background and um, that picture and even upbringing and programming than every other single person in this entire world. So there is no normal. Mm-hmm. Like, let's take that off of the page and let's just establish that where you're at is where you're at for you. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love good. that. I love that. And I think, you know, if, if, uh, if we can all, you know, listeners and us and, and everybody, like if we can normalize these conversations, if we can share our failures with others, um, you know, like I love it. I never do this myself. So maybe I should start, but I love it when, you know, a friend or somebody will share the, like the, uh, um, the not picture perfect, you know, pictures of what's going on in their life. And then that kids having a tantrum, I think actually, yeah. um, there was a thing about like Kim Kardashian recently did this with her kids, shared some of their like tantrum photos and whatnot to, to show the other side. Mm-hmm. Do that. If we can have, you know, these, these vulnerable conversations with our peers, um, it allows them to maybe share with us, you know, and also conversations on how did you do that? You know, like, how did you buy that other house? Or like, what are you doing? Um, You know, and and being Mm -hmm. willing to ask those questions. Um, Asking those questions does not make you look like an idiot. I promise you. Right? (laughs) And like, by nature, I am an oversharer. Like, I'm just like, transparency, you know, like, here I am. I come, and I forget that I don't forget. I ignore maybe that other people aren't the same way and I'll I'll come in with a bunch of questions and I'll be like oh you know what you don't have to answer me if you don't want to but you know like <laughs> well like how did you do that or how much money did that cost or how much do you make like I want to know like I if you don't want to answer you do not have to mm-hmm. um, but also help me help like I want to do exactly what you've done and and I can't even get a grasp on it if I don't know the numbers behind it yeah yeah Yeah. or even where to start right so for financial planner we're we're always really focused on you know the the logistics of it but for you know someone who's not a planner it's like how do you even start you know to, to to get to that point where you can and I think that that's what I hear a lot from people is they just, they're so overwhelmed by not even knowing like what to focus on, what to start with, like how to eventually do this. And there's too much conflicting information out there. There's like media overload. There's mm-hmm. too many voices. There's too many influencers and opinions mm-hmm. or they don't even know what's right or wrong. And often the biggest financial mistake I see a lot of people making is turning to like internet forums and chats of people who don't have financial education almost in a way sometimes like the blind leading the blind um and i see that a lot in the cross-border space to be honest because they're looking for that type of information because it's not readily available per se but Mm -hmm. i think it happens um often is that there is a little bit of that so i would just caution you know if you are talking to someone and how they did it just make sure that there is some you know someone that you can run that strategy by 
that does have, you know, some professional awareness around that is that you don't make any mistakes that might be uniquely akin to you. Yeah, good point. And I I feel the same way, especially because, you know, my zone of genius has that real estate component, which is like very controversial when it comes to social media. And when I'm scrolling, I do find that a lot of the experts in the space, they know just enough to be dangerous. And so their advice is valid, but they aren't showing the full picture. Whereas a advisor or financial planner comes to the table with, I'm not here to make decisions for you. I'm here to make decisions with you so that we can, we can talk about your options, talk about my recommendation and why it is that way. Um, but also some people do feel like they have nowhere else to go. So that what else are you going to do? You're going to go to Google. You're going to go to Reddit. You're going to try to find the answer to your pain point. Yeah, for sure. And it's so easy because you just have to scroll, right? Like that's a really, as a mom, then we're busy. We're busy moms. Like often our reprieve, which is not necessarily, I'm not saying it's good or bad, is picking up our, our devices and having two minutes to just take our brains off of, whatever it is that we're dealing with. And if we're following those things and we get those quick hits, like it can really stick in there. Like I follow a lot of parenting type of things on Instagram. And um, one of those stuck in my head the other day and that resonated with me so much that it caused me to have almost like a a big mom breakdown on the weekend. And my husband's like, you got to stop doing that. (laughs) You stop reading these things online because it's not healthy, you know? So you know, a word of caution is that, you know, something that seemingly comes from a source of, uh, like you said, Megan, someone who knows enough to be dangerous, it can be dangerous for you if you don't know what to do with that information. Totally. Yeah. Having a having a team of, uh, you know, experts or uh, around you, mentors or professionals or whoever you choose to to listen to, um, somebody with you know, the, the, uh, the background to actually ask, answer your questions, vet your questions. I love a good, you know, online scroll and online research and hear what other people are doing. Cause there's a million ways to get to the same destination. And I might not have thought about it in the way that somebody online might have. Um, but it's such a good disclaimer to remember that, um, you know, those are just uh, planted seeds and you need mm-hmm. to go and talk to somebody else about that before, uh, before committing to it or yeah. implementing. Well, and, I, and I think the hard thing is who do people then go and talk to? Cause they might be listening right now and saying, okay, well that sounds good, but like, who do I trust? And like, yeah. who can I talk to? And that is one of the biggest and most difficult things I think is finding the right fit for you. And, and understanding the person that you choose to work with, you know, what um, is their, is their, you know, niche or specialization? Um, how are they compensated? Um, you know, how do they work with you? Are they aligning in, in the way that the services they provide uh, align with what you are looking for? And, and there's lots of different professionals who do lots of different things out there in the sector. So I think it's important to understand, you know, if you're going to, Um, a bank branch versus you're going to um, a robo advisor or you're working with someone who works at a private investment council. Like what are the differences in these different types of um, financial professionals and what they can provide for you? Uh, Because, you know, I'm not for everybody. Megan's not for everybody. Nobody is for everybody. So talk to lots of different people, 
see what they do, see how they're compensated and see if what they're offering aligns specifically with what it is that you or your family is looking for. Good point. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, for anybody listening, if you don't have that, you know, circle around you, now is a great time to start putting those feelers out to start doing some research and ask the friends, especially the ones who are similar to you, um, ask them who they're working with and find out not just a name and phone number of that person, but like, why do they why, why are they working with them? What do they enjoy about the, the service uh, or the products that that, that, that person provides and, and start building that, you know, that Rolodex um, mm -hmm. yourself, because you might not need it now, but you will at some point. <laughs> when you're ready. Yeah. <laughs> when you're ready. Absolutely. I, one thing that I've seen a lot of people do is they'll just go to their, their parents and they'll say, Hey, who do you use? Yeah. And uh, let me go and I'll, I'll use them too. I've had so many people say that to me and then I'll say, well, uh, you know, do you have a relationship with this person? No, not really. Like I'm just using them because my family uses them. Yeah. Okay. So oftentimes that person has no relationship with them. They're really just saying, well, I get the lower discount fee because I'm with this family structure. So that works for me, but there's no advice. There's no relationship. It's just, it's literally, it's like transactional in a way. So I would caution against any sort of like, well, I'm doing it because my family's doing it thing. I don't always find that that's in the best interest of the individual coming in, right? Mm -hmm. um, you're often just piggybacking on another relationship, but are you really establishing a new relationship? Maybe, but in more times than I can count, it's, it's actually not. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, I think that's a great place to, to end. Um, where can people find out more about you if they do have questions or they think that you're in alignment with some of the advice that they need? Oh, well, thank you for asking. Um, they can find me at modernsense.ca. Uh, so that's my website. Uh, I'm also on Instagram at modern underscore sense. Uh, and I'm on LinkedIn as well. And you can find me under my professional name on LinkedIn, which is um, Andrea Thompson. So um, all of those links are available through the website for the social media. Um, and you can go on and book a complimentary consultation to see if there is a fit if you are interested in working with an advice-only planner. Okay, that's awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks for spending your time with us today. If you heard anything that piqued your interest, check out the show notes because we probably have some extra deets or links down there. Your homework for today go talk to someone about your money, either your spouse, your kids, your coworker, or a licensed professional. And if you don't like those humans today, we're always talking in Lindsay's Facebook group, Black is the New Red. So join us over there, head over to Facebook, type in Black is the New Red. You'll see so many amazing like-minded individuals in there, trying to get better, asking the right questions, supporting one another. We look forward to hanging out with you again on your next dog walk or while you watch soccer practice from the sidelines. Cheers! <laughs>